Rachel. Hi, Jim. <laughs> Good to see you or hear you. Yes, both. both. Yeah. Same, same. As always. Yeah. So today I'm so excited because we're going to go back to one of our, well, one of our first episodes. Our first episode was talking about an article. And now we're going to talk about two articles today, which yes. I love to do. I like to discuss things with my smart friend. Um, you found these articles and I think they are amazing. Yeah. So this year in my work, I've really been paying attention to norms and in the um, instances where I'm working with people and I, and we establish norms together, how that the feel is really different for me as the facilitator than with groups where there either aren't any norms or I just give them norms. So I've been really kind of paying attention to norms um, this so year. So you say the feeling, the feeling is different, like in what way, like is it better or do people seem more invested in the norms? Um, so I feel like with the groups that I have, that we have collectively established norms, I can, I can call them on those norms. Like I can challenge them more as a facilitator by calling in the norms, by referencing the norms, by reminding them that they have these norms to create a positive learning experience. Whereas in other groups, where those norms have not been collectively established. I feel like when I challenge them, I'm challenging them because I want to as a facilitator, not because they have said as a learner, they want to be challenged. Does that make sense? Yeah, but have the people in your group that set the norms said that they wanna be challenged as learners or are they just doing that exercise because you've made them do it? Well. I think we can get into that in the conversation. So I think we should talk about the articles first. Okay. And well, then we can talk about my application of some of these ideas. I have done it multiple ways. And I generally find that nobody pays attention to the norms. And I've even tried to uh, focus in on the norms um, by saying things like, okay, which norm do you think, you know, choose a norm that you think is going to be most challenging for you today. Mm -hmm talk about it with your team, you know, that kind of thing, just to kind of hone in on the norms, but yeah, they don't, I don't feel like people own the norms. Mm. And when, okay. when the, and when the community comes up with the norms, I feel like we're missing norms, which is what this article is about. So, you know, things I would think are important for us to have important conversations are left mm -hmm. out of the norms. Okay. So, so this article from article. Learning Forward, should groups set their own norms? Maybe not. I love that. And I, I saw an article recently in Ed Leadership about like teacher buy-in is overrated, which I thought was kind of interesting. And we should maybe talk about that at some point. But like this basically just says that collaborative norms are about white dominance, right? Mm -hmm. And that... Um, by allowing the group to set their own norms that you basically just reify that. Um, and I thought that was really interesting that it could end up, those norms could end up silencing, especially typically marginalized populations. 
Yeah. I thought the norms that they developed, like I had to read them over like several times though. And I don't know how helpful that is, you know, because I, I think they were hard to understand. Yeah. So this article says, no, they shouldn't come up with their own norms because of the dominance of whiteness and white fragility. Our norms typically just continue to protect that. And they give some examples like being respectful what does that actually mean? And in a system that is um, inflicted with lots of imbalances of power and inequities, you know, are we still supposed to be respectful when someone's protecting the status quo? But then they go to say, so we have our own norms and we, we give them to them. And I think I actually don't like their norms. <laughs> well, let's read them because people are probably wondering what they are. Impact is greater than intent. So own your impact and examine, investigate, and interrogate your intent. Because uh, they kind of talk about, you know, presume the best of the people that are at the table, which is often, you know, a norm. Assume good intentions yeah. or positive intent. And so. And I like that one because that, that's like a foundational um mindset i think for dismantling white supremacy is that it doesn't matter whether or not you intended harm if the impact is harm then you need to fix it so i like that one okay all right um ask for what you need and tell what you can give and then the third one is ask for what others need and what others can give why don't you like those? <laughs> well, because I think, again, if I am a fragile white person and I ask for what I need, I'm still asking, typically, unless I'm super conscious, I'm still asking for comfort. I'm still asking for incremental progress. I'm still asking to... Um, I'm asking to save face. I'm asking to be told I'm okay, even though I'm doing these harmful things unintended. Like, I just, I don't, I don't feel that that's very provocative. Do you? Ask for what you need. Um, no, but I do think that, that people do need to ask for what they need. I mean, I'm a little worried about, just shutting people down because they won't like if they don't say it in the meeting they won't say it at all or I mean it, it's not that they won't say it at all they'll say it later you know they'll a, say it to their colleagues right yeah. and so I just fear that you know uh, silence means something right and so it needs to be interrogated as well which you know we'll talk about that with the next article but like asking for what you need, getting people to talk and to feel okay about talking is better than in a space where it's facilitated maybe is better than having them talk alone, kind of in a gossipy venting sort of way, which is not very productive. Yeah, I mean, are, am I asking for what I need to, to feel happy or I'm asking for what I need to stop being a white supremacist or stop being 
having implicit bias? Am I asking for what I need to actually be a better teacher? Or am I asking for what I need to feel okay about the way I'm teaching? Like, I, I just still think, because if you go back to the very first paragraph, when it defines, this is also part of the problem, is we have this quote unquote best practice of establishing norms, but, but norms for what? Like, what is the purpose of norms? Right. And right. normally, it's, it's, yeah. go ahead, sorry. No, normally to protect the status quo, right? Yeah, and so it says even here, the common rationale for this approach is that it builds community and creates buy-in. That is not why I establish norms. So I, I just don't, th I think that's part of the problem is we're not even clear what norms are supposed to do. So what are they supposed to do? Well, what are they supposed to do? According to this research, it says that they're supposed to build community and create buy-in. Yeah, no, I don't think that. I think, well, I just do, honestly, like as a leader, I do norms because I'm told that that makes a difference. And actually, like recently, I was part of a group that wasn't having very, well, again, like this is about safety, right? Which is controversial in this, in these articles, but you know, this group wasn't having conversations that people were feeling upset after the conversations, you know, they were angry or, you know, mm -hmm. um, ignited, whatever. And so we wrote norms as a way of, after the fact, we didn't have norms prior to that, but we wrote norms as a way of addressing some of those feelings that people were having and to make people feel more safe in the meeting. And so, yeah, I mean, I think norms get created for different reasons, but rarely is it, but I, I don't, I, you know, I think we're assuming a lot by thinking that even the purpose of these meetings is to advocate for change. Like they're not. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like if we are going to get clear about the purpose of norms, we have to get clear about the purpose of the meeting in which we're establishing norms. Right. So with, and I'm thinking about my work with Nebo District, which has been really exciting this year. And I'm working with 14 um, elementary school leadership teams. And we're doing instructional rounds, which is a whole different podcast that we could have on instructional rounds and the power of those. But so I had three anchor sessions with these folks. So there was like, I don't know, 60, 70 people during the summer, three half day anchor sessions where we learned about instructional rounds. We learned about collecting data. We learned about problem of practice. But before all that, we set up norms. And I defined the norms as these are agreements that we will make with each other that help us protect a relationship to, to, so that we can do our best learning, right? Mm. So if we're setting norms for PLCs, well, PLC stands for professional learning community. So I, and I've done the same thing with park when I'm working individually with park elementary in Nebo school district with each grade level team. And so when I set up norms for them, I help them think about doing their best learning, receiving feedback openly, and 
being willing to initiate challenging conversations. Because to me, those are the three aspects of a powerful PLC is that we well, are those all sound like norms. Well, yeah, but those, right. But those aren't norms because those are the purpose of the meeting. So a norm is what agreements will we make about the way we interact with each other to create a relationship in which we can do that work, do our best learning, receive feedback, and initiate challenging conversations. Okay. And okay. How so does we, that, how does that let's play go out back for to you? the. It's been amazing. Okay. But let's go back to the article. Well, I thought we were, I mean, we were still talking about the article, but just in terms of application of practice. Yes. So, yeah, so I think we're right <laughs> in that, um, first of all, you have to become crystal clear on, so norms aren't really the problem. No. More of the problem is like, why are we even having these PLCs? Is it to yeah. come and sort of, you know, talk about, how wonderful we already are or is yeah. it to come together and really learn challenge our practice challenge one another's practice grow from that experience yep um but i think um, most of the time these meetings are the norms that we set are about safety white is safety about, yeah just status quo safety Mm-hmm. And I mean, safety, when you say safety, that's the default is white safety because most of the people around the table are white. Well, and then the other thing that this, both of the articles that we're looking at today, the basis of these are kind of, so when the team is made up of, of members who have racial diversity, then the BIPOC folks are often silenced and white supremacy prevails. But in your world and my world, typically the whole team is white. So right. I think even when it's a bunch of white folks sitting around a table, we still have to do something to make us, we still have to have some parameters that really help us think about our kids because we are not serving just white kids. And even if we were serving white kids, they're the ones who need to do the work to dismantle white supremacy in the future too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the other thing I think is that, that we really have to pay attention to the norms, not just for what they can and should do for the members at the table, but what they can and should do for the practices, beliefs, and attitudes of all the members at the table. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. So um, I want to kind of switch over to the other article. I know we're not quite done with this one, but you know, I want to Well, let's just fold. say that the third norm that they say we should give people is ask for what others need and what others can give, which if we're all following the second norm, then why would we need the third norm? <laughs> well, it's basically just saying that you need to you need to um, ask for what you need, but then also ask for what others need, right? So you're acknowledging that I'm not the only person in the space. I need to hear what other people have to offer as well. Sure. 
But if everyone in this space is committed to say what they need, then why do I need to ask? Because y'all have already said what you need. I'm just being oh, that's snarky true, about right? it. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes it's hard for people to ask for what they need. You know, even though that's a norm, it's hard for sure. people to ask for what they need. So if I'm conscious of that and I see somebody who's being silent, I might say, hey, it seems like you're not contributing. What do you need from this conversation? Or what are you, or what are you feeling you need? Yeah. Yeah. So uh-huh. I get that. And what do you need in relation to what? Like to feel safe or to right. learn at your highest level? I right. would say the latter. Um, okay. Yeah. So the second article called Respect Differences Challenging the Common Guidelines in Social Justice Education is written by Dr. Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo, who wrote white fragility and nice white people. Um, And we've reached out to Dr. Sensoy and she said that hopefully she would have time for us in the summer to talk about this article. So we may circle back. I would love to, um, to pick her brain on some of the things. So she is an associate professor at Simon Fraser University and um, Robin D'Angelo is an associate professor in education at Westfield State University. So that would be cool to be able to talk to one of them. Yeah. So this I've, article I've reached out. rocked I've my reached world. Out. I know, this is so good. Um, I've reached out to Robin D'Angelo. Hello, Robin D'Angelo, if you're listening to this, we yes. would love to talk to you. I reached out to her in the past and you know she's, she's super famous, so. Yeah. She's written White Fragility and Nice Racism. And so, you know, she's got a lot going on. But yes, I agree. This this article rocked my world too. I was struck by um, the fact that um, even the, like, the opinions of professors might be given less credence uh, because they are a woman or because they're... LGBTQ, uh, or because they're a person of color, um, and the difference that might that might happen as a result of what they're teaching, right? So if they're teaching this social justice class in a university, then that might be very different than if they are teaching a biology class. Yeah. But I loved the way that they like stood their ground in this article and said no, like this is this is um, a reputable field that has been researched and our knowledge base is just as strong and as as powerful as anything that you might learn in a biology class. And so we're not gonna let you say two plus two equals five, that's stupid, right? So we're gonna make you, you know, own the research that's already been conducted. Your experience is not gonna be able to trump research we're going to make you um, start at this place, right? Yeah. This this uh, benchmark for knowledge, and um, you're not going to get to to take our field backwards. Yeah, I loved that. That yeah. was new for me. I know. I remember a conversation a hundred years ago in Salt Lake District during one of our equity meetings, district equity meetings. And we were talking about culturally relevant pedagogy and how do we really support teachers in understanding its purpose and going beyond multiculturalism, right? Going beyond a, a multicultural talent show. 
And someone was, someone who I very much respect, who I will not name, said, well, why don't we just not call it cultural relevant pedagogy? Because that just puts a bad taste in people's mouths. So let's just call it something different. And that my response was, there is a gigantic empirical research field of work right. about culturally relevant pedagogy. We're, you know, we're not going to rename it. We're not going to pretend it doesn't exist. And why are some social sciences accepted as truth and other social sciences are not? Right. So what social yeah, sciences I, are recognized as truth? Well, I think just like behavioralism, mm. right? I mean, well, we, because we, trust, they... we trust Pavlov dogs and they're salivating, <laughs> but we can't trust a gigantic imperial research field of, right. that shows systemic racism exists in our systems. Right. And I think that has to do with, because uh, some of that feeds into like our belief systems already. Sure. Doesn't run contrary to what we've like grown up believing. We as in white people. We as in white people, we as in, you know, heterosexual, uh, you know, the majority. Yeah, middle class, majority speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That, That hard work equals success that, you know, if you don't yeah. make it, it's kind of your, your issue. Um, the one thing I worry about is like, what about people who say, we just don't respect free speech, that this isn't about free speech. I saw an episode of Bill Maher last night. <laughs> um, I mean, he was basically saying like, we have to protect free speech at all costs. And sometimes people are going to say things that hurt our feelings or make us feel uncomfortable and we shouldn't need to be protected from that. And in fact, I'm directing a play right now that kind of has that same message. It's kind of like, well, um, you know, are we taking away the, uh, the power? Are we disempowering people and their resiliency by focusing on only the negative aspects of um, being LGBTQ or being a person of color, you know, that the, the they somehow need to be protected versus prided in their resiliency yeah. and strength. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. are we, are we being less strengths-based? Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying what well, that's my opinion. I'm just saying that's kind of yeah. a, a thought. That is a thought, but that feels really far away from the topic of our conversation. <laughs> Cause we're talking about, yes. Cause we're not, we're talking. I am talking about in like PLCs or professional learning structured conversations. Has anyone, you know, started ranting about free speech during PLC? Well, I think that that's the thought though, is that you're silencing certain people who you disagree with, right? So like, if we're not going to allow a certain level of discourse to occur during PLCs, then you're essentially saying, you know, unless you have something better to offer, don't speak. <laughs> um, okay, so on page four of the um, Respect Differences article, 
it talks about why allowing this quote unquote open dialogue where people in the power group should have the right to express their feelings and, and debate, um, it gives reasons why that's problematic. Right. So number one, the article suggests that like we know these narratives so when someone in the power in the power group wants to explain how they don't intend to be racist and they can prove it by because they had a friend who was black when they were a kid and like all these these innocent white narratives we all know them so they're actually not telling us any information that we don't already know. So it really just is a person's need to have airtime. Mm-hmm. And secondly, these narratives that we all know, these dominant narratives that we all know, we all, including BIPOC people, because they've listened to these narratives their whole lives as well. They're really hard to shut down because it is one person speaking from their own innocent intent right? Mm -hmm. And so they're just hard to shut down because you actually have to tell a person, stop talking. Like we've heard it all before, stop talking, which no one wants to do because that feels really mean. Right. And it also also starts a tidal wave of other people agreeing or disagreeing. Oh yeah, that's my experience too. She talks about that. Yeah. I mean, she says it hijacks the discussion. So we're no longer talking about you know, is this curriculum relevant to our diverse student community or are these instructional practices benefiting girls versus boys? It's now just become like, yeah, that happened to me one time. And I know there was this other time. And so the whole conversation's hijacked about this dominant narrative that we all know anyway. And we've gone away from the professional question that the group is supposed to be answering right right and so that's part of and then the third one is that the common norm is that everyone's opinion matters um but if these opinions are coming from you know somewhat unconscious dominant narrative then the opinions are hurtful to other people so then that contradicts the whole the norm of let's be respectful because right. my white dominant narrative has a million microaggressions towards BIPOC folks or towards right, right transgender or LGBTQ communities. So, and by allowing those in, then we're not really respecting each other or being safe or whatever right. it is because yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that's right. I, I, I agree with you. Totally. I agree with that. Totally. I was just saying, you know, some of the things that I know. Yeah white folk out there are saying um, about and would say in response to this article, you know, in terms of, I can't, I can't even speak, you know, I don't even get a, a chance to, to share my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, again, back to what I said earlier in the math class or in a biology class, like people aren't going to be saying, but I want to share my opinion on biology or I want, you know, and right. again, that goes to the lack of respect that people have for this field, for this area of study. 
So I love the, um, this article actually does give us the eight or nine, um, they call them discourse guidelines, right? Yeah, are you talking about um, um, educators must, oh no, uh, it talks about it on page eight. So yeah, says, the bottom of page seven and top of page eight. Well, those are um, I think the guidelines are below on page eight. Strive for intellectual humility, be willing to grapple with challenging ideas differentiate between opinion, which everyone has and informed knowledge, which mm -hmm. comes from sustained experience, study and practice. Hold your opinions lightly and with humility. Um, and then they go on to have like, talk about silence breakers and question starters, which I thought were really great. Yeah. Um, so some discussion st starters for a class at the, they're talking about at the college level, right? Higher right. level where people would be able to um, kind of employ these guidelines. Yeah. Um, I love and, the quote. It says, because schools are among the most powerful institutions wherein social stratification is reproduced, they are also where it must be challenged. Like to me, that is just a call to arms for all educators, like at every level, right? K-12, higher ed. That if we don't wanna to continue to reproduce the inequities that we have right now, we all have to do better to interrogate what we have right now. Right. Yeah, I love it. I've read it over and over. Again, I go back to like, I always think about practicality in terms of where we are situated, which is the public school field. And where does this fit into the work that we do with teachers every day or with principals every day mm -hmm. or with district office personnel? Cause you work with all levels of the, yeah. of the public school organization. Because I think a lot of schools are afraid of this kind of thing. Well, especially now in the in the wake of the attack on critical race theory and all of that. Um, so I think now I'm I feel like to answer your question. You know because this author, these two authors are writing about higher ed and how to facilitate conversations in a social justice education program, like their purpose is clearly defined. Their purpose is to get folks prepared to become educators with a social justice. Um, I'm trying to rid myself of, of war metaphors when, I'm, when I talk about education. Mm. It's really hard. 
Say more about that. Well, I just don't appreciate like when people say, oh, you know, in the classrooms is where there's boots on the ground. Like, I, don't, I just don't in like the, it. In the trenches. Making, yeah, in the trenches. I was just going to say they're trying to get people ready to go into the education with an arsenal of social justice approaches. Like, I don't know. But so anyway. Especially um, now. Now is probably not the best time to use war references. Right. right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, anyway. So again, back to our work in K-12 as educational leaders, that's where I think we really have to be clear about the purpose of our meetings. And I just am really surprised, you know, after so long with Dufour's work, I mean, we had critical friends theory, like way, way, way back. Um, And then Dufour's work on PLCs. There's just still a lack of understanding around the purpose of PLCs. So I just, with those schools that I work in, I really stress that PLC stands for professional learning community. And so when I, when I have the opportunity to start the year with them, I spend time like, so what does that look like? If we come, if we have our PLC meeting on Monday afternoons and we actually experience those as learning opportunities, then what does that look like? And how do we go into it differently than we come out, right? I want my students to come into my language arts classroom and learn something and then go out like knowing more or thinking differently or having questions. And I want the same thing for my teachers during a PLC. Yeah. So I talk about you know, at Northwest, when we had really good PLCs where we kind of rumbled with each other, a lot of people are using the word rumble because I think Brené Brown is big on that one. We, I used to call it the um, a Jerry Springer PLC. Like, yes, we had a Jerry Springer PLC because people threw really, chairs at each other. We didn't throw chairs at each other, <laughs> but like people really grappled with things, and we got emotional because this is an emotional job, and we are we want to be the best that we can be but not emotional in a way that stunts our professional growth, right? But just that kind of like, wow, how do we really negotiate what is best for kids? Because there's a thousand different things we could choose. So I, I'm just really big on trying to get people to understand um, what does learning look like as an adult? How am I changed as an adult from a learning experience? And I want that to happen for every PLC. And I want that to happen in every professional, in every professional development. Yeah. Well, you do need safety for that. Right. But it's gotta be like safety. You gotta ask safety for who and is safety keeping us from having hard conversations. I, right. You, you don't disagree with that. Like, I just need, don't like the word safety. Well, I mean, think about the research around psychological safety, right? So I like, know, but so many people equate safety with comfort. Yes. And learning is cognitive dissonance. Like it literally, learning cannot happen without a cognitive level of discomfort. Right. And the problem with safety is that you're right. People do interpret that as I'm comfortable, um, and then if I get challenged, then all of a sudden I'm not, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And, and so it safe. wasn't safe. Yeah. yeah. So I just don't like the word safety, just like I don't like the word fair. Most people think fair is equal. 
And that's, to me, that's not fair. So those are two words that I, just me, Rachel doesn't like. I got it. So how do you create a level of, um, maybe it's trust, right? In, in the organization, in the people that are in the organization to be able to talk candidly about these topics, to be able to have this list of um, agreements or guidelines, they call it in the article. Um, so again, trust is a two-way street, right? So if I trust Jim, it's because there's some level of reciprocity or something. And so if Jim does something that I don't like, then I don't trust Jim anymore. Whereas like, if you look at these guidelines that they give us, they're very personal, personal. Like I choose to do this or I choose not. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the group is doing. So I can raise critical questions or I can tolerate ambiguity. So I think norms have to be independent based. Say more about that. I don't, under, I don't quite understand. Okay. So if I'm gonna trust you, oftentimes that's because you and I have built a relationship and based on my history with you, I now, have, I now trust you. Right. Does that make sense? Right. I would never say, Oh, hi, Jim. And right off the bat, trust you. Like trust is based on some sort amount of time of building a relationship. And then based on how that relationship is built, then I decide, okay, I, I trust Jim. And if I'm not a very trusting person, it might take two years before I trust you. Or if I'm a very right. trusting person, I could trust you after two weeks. Right. I get, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I like that. So so it's kind of like, do we, do we capture teacher buy-in first or do we build teacher buy-in? Do we have trust first before we do this work or do we build trust? So right. what you're saying is that like by doing these things, by making these things uh, central to the PLC or any meeting that you're in, then tr that's how trust is built and everybody has to contribute, right? It's not just, yeah, because sometimes I feel that way as a leader, like, I'm the one responsible for the safety and I'm the one who's responsible for the trust when this is like a two-way street, you know, if exactly. you're going out and, and talking about colleagues or talking about the, whatever we talked about in the PLC in the parking lot and kind of a venting way, that's not very trustworthy. Trustworthy. Right. So safe. I actually, I actually like to help people create or groups create norms where it's, it's an I statement. So I will be vulnerable. Okay. Right. And so I, even if you're a liar or if you're mean, then I still can choose to be vulnerable with you and I might pay for it. Right. But that's different than like, we have built a relationship and now we trust. Am I making sense? It's really nuanced. Right. I will be vulnerable. Um, so, um, but then will everybody, no, everybody won't have different norms. It'll still be group norms, but fra framed in terms of I statements. Yes. Okay. And, and do you encourage your group to come up with those? Is that the way you like to operate? So if, if I work with a group long-term, right, as I have with Nebo District or as, it, as I have with Park Elementary, then I, I facilitate a process where they create their norms. So for example, 
um, I have with this last group, uh, it was a team at park and they had created norms in the summer, but then because the numbers of students, number of students expanded, a new teacher came on like in October and we didn't reset norms. And the team was really challenging um, because the norms weren't there. They weren't established. They weren't being helpful because one of the members was not part of that process. So we just realized based on the team leads um, request, she was like, can you help us set norms again? Because they're, you know, it's not working for us. So I had them each do an individual free write, three, three of them actually. One was I had them think of their greatest learning experience and what conditions led to that. And it wasn't a professional learning experience. So one of them wrote about learning how to ride a bike. Um, one of them wrote about how to learning how to be a mother. And then, um, crap, I'm so sorry that I can't remember the other one. Anyway, so free write, what conditions led you to be successful in this learning experience? Then they, I had them do a free write of think of about a time that you were, that you received feedback and you were really open to it, right? It was critical feedback. It wasn't like a pat on the head, but you were really open to it. And um, what were the conditions that allowed you to do so? And then a third free write about, think of a time that you initiated a hard conversation and what prompted you to do that and what kind of skills or you know, approach did you use to, to do so effectively? After they wrote about all those three things, I said, based on what you've just written, what are the conditions that will that you need to create a relationship with someone else where you can have optimal learning experience, where you can receive critical feedback and where you can initiate challenging conversations? So then they wrote those conditions then each team member shared the conditions. They didn't necessarily share the stories, but they shared the conditions that led to successful learning experience, that led to being a, a, a open to receive feedback and led to um, having the courage to initiate a challenging conversation. And we listened to each other. One, to just know who is this person? Like, what does Jim need? Right. So what does Jim need to learn to receive feedback and to ha have hard conversations? And then after each person shared that, we said, OK, what were the common conditions that y'all need? And we came up with three or four or five common conditions. And it was super awesome. Because. It it really like they learned about themselves through this process. They learned about each other through this process. And then we had established three to four norms that helped them do their best learning, receive feedback and initiate hard conversations. And you didn't have anybody say, I need to feel safe. If they did, I challenged them. Okay. Well, how unsafe of you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and that's the other thing too you is is, um, you know, as a consultant, it's nice because everywhere I go, I define my role. And it, when something is being facilitated by a peer, I think that's hardest. So when team leads are supposed to facilitate a PLC meeting with their team, 
And they really have to be the facilitator to challenge the status quo and really push people to interrogate their own practices and their own thoughts. That's the most challenging facilitative role, I think. It's way easier for me to come in as a consultant, even though I don't have the relationship that they have with each other. I just think it's easier because my role is super clearly defined. Can it happen from colleague to colleague? Can it? Yeah. Or should I think it always so. be someone a little bit removed from the team, like the principal or like a consultant or? Well, I, not everybody has that opportunity, right? Yeah. So I think you just have to, whoever is facilitating has to be super clear about purpose, roles and responsibilities and then norms and how to protect norms. So the other thing, which I don't, we don't have time to go into because we've already talked too long, Jim, is um, what do you do for the, like, we've only talked about establishing norms, but there's so, so much more to talk about in protecting them and calling them in to help a conflict. Like that's the problem. People put norms at the top of their agenda and never look at it again. Right. Right. Which is what I was lamenting at the beginning of the meeting. Yeah. We can talk about that at a different time. Yeah, we'll need to, because I, I'm really, um, I'm really interested in this topic, especially since reading this. I'm, I'm, couldn't you just, okay, so just to kind of close out, maybe, I was wondering, couldn't you take these um, guidelines that are offered in this article by um, D'Angelo and um, Sensoy? Sensoy. Uh huh. And couldn't you like present them to the group and say, because I did this once with or recently with a group. Uh, I didn't do it. I didn't facilitate it. It was facilitated with us. And uh, basically they provided us with a set of um, guidelines or agreements and said, um, do we need to add anything to this one or change anything about this one so that it meets our needs as a group? Um, you know, do we need to, to mess with this one to, to meet our needs as a group? So like they get a start, nice starting place. These, yeah. are, these are vetted, right? Because they're this is a peer-reviewed journal and it's got, you know, two amazing scholars who have written it. And yeah. so, you know, obviously they're solid, but then, you know, we might want to tailor them a little bit to our own specific needs. Yeah, I, I mean, I use these guidelines when I worked with Backman Elementary on, um, we just had a dismantling white supremacy year-long professional development last year with them on almost a monthly basis. And I just use these guidelines. I don't know that you'd say, do you want to tailor them? But I would say coming to a common understanding of what each looks like and sounds like. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, if it's peer reviewed research and we're a bunch of white people who we can't hundred percent trust ourselves not to maintain status quo, like let's just take this research and use it, but let's make sure that we agree this is what each of these looks like and sounds like. Right. The negotiation could be problematic in terms of yeah. what we're trying to get, what we're trying to go for. Yeah. Yeah. I realizing that I have been generally too task oriented. And so I've bypassed some of these processes. Like to me, this is very process oriented. Mm-hmm. Some of these processes to make sure that the tasks that we end up doing or the products that we end up 
creating as a team are as worthwhile as they can be. And that learn yes. and, and one of the products being teacher learning, right? Because yeah. that's professional learning community where the outcome should be quality learning. Yeah. But in order to be able to get that outcome, you've got to immerse yourself in some process. And so I'm thinking about how I might be able to back up even now and spend some time doing some of that work. Yeah. This is one of those instances, Jim, where I would say you have to go slow to go fast. <gasps> no. We were going to talk about that, but we will talk about that on another podcast. Yeah. Yes. I know. I told you I don't I don't love that phrase because I, know. I feel like yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Rachel. This was a fun conversation. Gave me lots to think about. I know. And that's the thing, right? We're just, we're, it's just been a lot of thinking because we're just trying to make our way through this. But I, I keep coming back to this article because it, each time I read it, it challenges my thinking again and again. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I need to read it again. I just read it once. So yeah. So thanks for processing it with me. Yeah, and we'd love to hear what everybody else thinks too. So make sure you send us a message out there. Yep, listeners. yep, yep. Okay, thanks, Rachel. Okay, bye, Jim. Bye.